Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Krulak community. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brew Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brewcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. So for the second time today, we're excited to welcome guests to the Brewcast who not only have front row seats to Force Design 2030, but are helping to drive the bus. This afternoon, we get to talk with Major General Frank Donovan, Commanding General of the 2nd Marine Division, and Command Master Chief Scotty Cox, who serves as the Senior Enlisted Navy Advisor to the division. For those who've been tracking Force Design 2030, you'll know that the 2nd Marine Division recently returned from their mission under Task Force 61-2 in the 6th Fleet Area of Operations and working and worked with U.S. Navy and partners and allies from the Mediterranean up into the Baltic Sea. The task force also conducted real-world experimentation on several of the concepts highlighted in Force Design 2030, such as the stand-in force and multi-domain reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance. General Donovan and Command Master Chief Cox will cover this and more in our conversation today. So first off, gentlemen, welcome to the program and uh, very much appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us in our audience. Hey, Major Brown, thank you very much. It's, it's an honor to take part uh, in this in this kind of podcast approach, especially with the great name that you've assigned to it. One of our real heroes uh, and and forerunners in the Marine Corps. So so thanks. Looking forward today. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, no, we're, we're very happy and very, very um, humbled and pleased that all of our staffs are able to work together to make this happen. So to get things going, I think for, um, to just lay some background for those in our audience who might not be familiar with what the 2nd Marine Division has been up to. Um, like I said, we know you recently returned from the UCOM AO with, uh, I'm, I'm going to say the long version of the name just so people have it, Task Force 61, Naval Amphibious Forces Europe slash 2nd Marine Division. So why was this task force initially created or stirred up? And what activities did you do in conjunction with the 6th Fleet, as well as ac what activities did you do with our partners and allies in the area? Okay. Um, well, so I'm glad you got the, the name right, because the Task Force 6-1 Naval Amphibious Forces Europe, and it would be probably correct Europe, Africa, because that's the, the Naval component has both Europe and African littoral region, you know, under their belt with the 6th Fleet commander. So, um, so, but that... With the six fleet commander, that's really part of the story. Um, so six one two task force six one two is mirrored after another task force called task force five one five, which is in located out of Bahrain and works for fifth fleet. And so really, that's the connecting files. That uh, I was forward in Bahrain for two years, twenty sixteen to eighteen, uh, as task force five one five in Bahrain. And uh, also there at the same time as a deputy fleet commander was Vice Admiral, now Vice Admiral Black, who is the commander of 6th Fleet. And so what he had in his mind is what we had in 5th Fleet was a, uh, a general officer, flag officer headquarters that provided command and control for the ARG-MU, the Amphibious Ready Group and the Marine Expeditionary Unit that was in CENTCOM. And that was out of kind of out of uh, a series of events that came together when the United States Navy uh, came off of the ESG-5, Expeditionary Strike Group 5 billet, uh, as a flag officer um, uh, almost a decade and a half ago. The Marine Corps said, hey, we'll put a general officer over there that will, will be then Task Force 5-1. Um, at the same time, 
we were uh, the, the 1MEF and Marsent were developing the 5th MEB, Marine Expeditionary Brigade concept in Bahrain. And by the time I got there in 2016, we had Task Force 5-1, we had 5th MEB kind of living in different places on the, on the, on the, the Navy base there in Bahrain. And so I got there, so why don't we just put it together, um, you know, uh, use our, our, our Navy stationary and, and drive it together as far as the Navy Correspondence Manual and call it Task Force 515 which then brought back the, brought together the goodness of that Navy Marine Corps team working together above the ARGMU level, where you have the Cadiff and Cliff relationship among 06s. This put one flag officer on top of that that reported directly to the fleet commander while also having a separate commander, which then was Marcent. And so Admiral Black had that in his mind um, as, as we looked at deploying an ARGMU from the East Coast and for the first time in almost 20 years, uh, since the start of the global war on terror, UCOM and AFRICOM were going to have an ARGMU that stayed in theater and didn't transit the Mediterranean, come across the Atlantic, maybe do an exercise or two, then transit the Mediterranean, Suez, and chopped into Fifthly. That's happened consistently for the whole time during GWAT. So then Admiral Black, as the, now the Sixth Fleet Commander, has an ARGMU staying in theater. So he said, okay, and then a couple of other things happened where he had a couple crises come up and he, he was looking for a commander and a command team that could bring, bring together those, those uh, naval and marine forces that operate in the littoral region, you know, that littoral zone um, around Africa and Europe and how to, bring a, how to bring those things together to execute kind of crisis response tasks. So what he did, he reached back to 515, brought that kind of construct forward, applied it to his structure there in Sixth Fleet, and uh, and then asked the two MEF commander, General Journey, hey, I'd like to stand up um, something like a 515 and support a Sixth Fleet while we have an ARGMU uh, in theater. So when he when we talked, I said, hey, sir, it sounds a lot like 515 that we both knew. So why don't we just call it 612? With the point is then understand the naval structure inside a fleet headquarters. So in this case, Task Force 60, okay, is your carrier stripe group commander. Task Force 61. Okay, is the Naval Amphibious Forces Europe Africa. Then it goes on down the line with the cruiser destroyers, the maritime patrol aircraft, submarines, uh, the Naval Expeditionary Combatant Corps, the NEC. All those folks down the line are task force commanders inside the 6th Fleet. So we just slid in as task force 6-1, Naval Amphibious Forces Europe and Africa, slash 2 for 2nd Mardiv. Stood up to come over and command and control the ARGMU while they're in theater. Um, to, to make sure we do the care and feeding, but also the tasking and the support and the leadership in theater for these different exercises we had planned. In the meantime, we also use that as the venue to bring in uh, some of our experimental aspects of force design assigned to the 2nd Marine Division, which is reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance. And we also brought in some of our Infrabatonic Experiment 30 called IBEX 30. We also were able to bring those into the mix. and so. I don't know, Scott, any thoughts from a fleet headquarters perspective on what do you think the fleet was looking for? So I think my role while I was there was crucial because it gave the command master chiefs out in the fleet a direct command master chief within CTF 612, but it also gave the sergeant majors somebody who they could reach back to and communicate and could speak that voice of Navy and Marine Corps and get the point across of what the issues may be as they came up. So that integration piece was yeah. was a big deal, um, having a yeah. command master chief over there. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of this, this naval integration that, you know, 
we're not getting back to our naval roots. This is what we do, right? And, and, and so the idea that inside the Marine Division, when we made this, this commitment to go overseas, was not what Marine Division does, we looked at our, our leadership team and just that talent management thing. Okay, if I'm going to go work in a fleet headquarters, we're going to take the command mass chief with to represent the blue infusion of the leadership level to step into fleet headquarters while our SAR Major, SAR Major Dan Krause, another, another phenomenal leader, stays, stays here with the chief of staff and the, uh, and the rest of the force and does a number of different activities throughout CONUS for other exercises and operations. So we're able to, to talent management inside of our own staff provide a blue-green team forward that snapped right into that, that fleet headquarters. Great. Thank you, sir. And uh, thank you, Command Master Chief. And I'm glad you brought up that talent management piece because we're going to hit that later on here in our discussion, but also it ties back to the conversation we just had with the Assistant Commandant this morning on talent management kind of as a whole. Um, Second Marine Division is doing some practical application of that. So definitely want to capture that here um, going forward. Uh, but first, I'd like to uh, go a little bit more into something else you mentioned, sir, which is bringing out the, the counter the reconnaissance, counter reconnaissance capability and, and actually kind of kicking kick, kick the tires on it. So it's been noted as a uh, focus area at Force Design 2030, especially in the recent update. So how did your task force apply this concept, um, both while, while Second Marine Division was back at home, but then when you went overseas with Task Force 61-2? And uh, what, what changes or adjustments did you find that, that had to be made to if necessary, permissions, titles, and authorities to make RXR work? And uh, what, what sort of takeaways did you get that forecast the future of reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance for the division and for the fleet? Uh, it's, it's a good question because it's, uh, it's probably a longer answer than you're looking for because it's a great story. And, and re the reason why is that we were able to, you know, as force design was rolled out, the idea of reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance and winning the reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance fight and that literal contact layer, the absolute importance of that, right? That's going to be our first, our first engagement with the enemy as we slide from contact to blunt layer. And if we don't win that kind of as a nation, as a maritime nation, we're going to have a hard time bringing forces to bear, right? Heavier forces to bear from CONUS that will come on future amphibious shipping or shipping that comes from CONUS or what we call black bottom merchant ships that move heavy equipment into theater. But if we can't win that reconnaissance and counter reconnaissance fight up front in support of the fleet commander who then gains and maintains, you know, temporal uh, or permanent sea denial, sea control capabilities at key maritime choke points, if we're not winning that fight, we can't even think about moving to the next phase of the campaign. So that's what really reconnaissance and counter reconnaissance is all about. We had the fortunate here, uh, fortunate opportunity here to leverage the great work done by a couple different those those planning teams and uh, second reconnaissance battalion and second light armor reconnaissance battalion. We're already working on kind of a small form factor of reconnaissance and counter reconnaissance. So before we are assigned second Mardiv through the MEF um, was assigned this task directly, we were already experimenting, thinking about. Hey, um, with force design and operating in that literal contact layer, how should we look? Boats, vehicles, what's our approach? And so when we were tasked um, in, in, in very early in 21 with this task of, hey, 2MF, 2nd Mardiv, take on uh, service level experimentation of reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance, we were already kind of moving forward on kind of kicking out ideas. We sat down with our MEF commander, General Journey, and laid out a, a pathway forward that originally were going to be a series of exercises here in the continental U.S., up and down the East Coast, the East Coast literals, you know, from really 
um, you know, uh, Virginia Beach, Norfolk area down to Key West? How can we do a series of exercises called literal exercises, LEXs, that we test out our concepts? Some were equipment, some were construct and, and, and C2 systems, some were, you know, TOs and TEs, but we're able to start bringing in uh, parts and pieces of, of, of equipment and gear and, and systems to test out the theory is that how would we actually do reconnaissance, counter reconnaissance in a literal contact layer? And we had some, you know, some, some initial things that we were working on and a lot of things didn't work, which is the great part about experimentation. But we wanted to step through an experimentation regimen that would eventually lead up to kind of a, a culminating uh, LEX, literal exercise, that we could kind of bring things together. And what we realized early on is that we had the ability to get near the coastal little region, you know, get our eyes out. And the eyes could be sensors, they could be tying into national technical means, it could be, in the end, we, we, we uncovered, you know, commercial surface search radars, like you'd see in the maritime domain, that we would then bring to that literal contact layer and then add our own surface search radars to the mix. And then how do we then, what we call index those, these, these target areas that would be lined up with uh, maritime choke points and get our information back. And then, so that's, that's the key kind of what really the development of what we came into, what let's call RXR, which is the acronym we use. So if you do this, you're doing RXR in support of a fleet commander, right? And all the guidance from um, force design specifically for, for us, for RXR, was increasing the fleet commander's uh, maritime domain awareness and maritime domain understanding. So to do that, so we can do all, all small form factor, we can get our radars out there, bring in, um, you know, uh, signals intelligent, fuse it all together, but who's it for, right? In this case, it's for a fleet commander. How to get that information back into that, that maritime operations center, the mock inside the fleet headquarters? And so one of the things we thought about early is that, well, let's, let's test this here in CONUS and then find somewhere to test it overseas. So in this time, you know, as we get through our different LEXs, one, two, and three, uh, we started working with different naval assets. We started working with um, uh, a command, an aviation command and control system that's called CAC2S, which is a small form factor on how you, how you view uh, aircraft and Link 16, how you bring it all together. We had a, a, um, the Marine Corps' only small form factor version of that. We brought that in. How do you take a surface search radar track and ingest it into a CAC2S to send a Link 6, 6, 6, 16, a Link 16 message out to an overflying F-35 or F-18 or off to a naval platform to get a piece of ordnance off to strike a target. Those are the things we're working on our Lexus. But again, how do you get that, that all that goodness over to a, a fleet headquarters. And that's really what our Lex, Lex has started working at. And we wanna say, can we take a final go with this overseas and work directly for a fleet headquarters? So we call Admiral Black up again, same name from before and said, sir, you know, how about, uh, do you, can we come over and experiment in your, in your, um, inside your fleet construct and do, do RXR? He said, absolutely. Let's try to put this together. So, so that gave us a, a touch point is that we're going to do three, four, five Lexes here in the United States, do some um, integration and some, and, some, and some tabletop exercises, and then we're going to launch the force into the six fleet uh, literal contact layer and then now go exercise RXR. And that's how kind of it played out. Now, in the meantime, you know, Ukraine, Russia, a lot of activity. And what we found ourselves is going over and shifting from exercising to operationalizing all in a very short period of time. So I think in the very beginning, it was 
it was really put down on the young Marines to, to figure this out. A lot of experimental, like the general said, and it didn't work, mm-hmm. but. Yep. Two months later, when we come back, those young Marines have figured out a way to make it work and to be able to paint that picture. And it was amazing to watch it happen yeah. with corporals and yeah, absolutely. And so, so a lot of things initially when you start getting you know, disparate systems and put them together. So yes, yeah, surface search radar, this you know, aviation command control system, some signals intelligence, scout snipers with high powered optics. It's all there. And you know, in that in that that maritime choke point. But how do you bring it together? And we're all looking at we had initially some tech reps and some other folks. And finally, we said, you know what? For the next Lex, I think it was Lex three. No more tech reps. No more FSRs. Let the Marines run. And so you ended up with a couple key sergeants and corporals with send some some heavy hitting staff NCOs kind of backing them up. Let them figure it out. So what were air gaps? Like okay, on this device, I can get this. I can get this feed. But I have no plug into the next thing. How do we do that? They figured it out. And it was absolutely remarkable. And to say, did we actually just do that? So we got to Lex 4, and the answer was, did what we just pull off that surface search radar actually just end up in the cockpit of that F 35 that took off at Oceana? And the answer is yes. And it was because some NCOs and staff NCOs just dropped the hammer and got busy and, and, and really um, took experimentation down to the next level. To problem solving, and in the end, um, we had a we had a system, not perfect, right? It's not. We kind of joked around about it. <laughs> Sometimes we look like the Beverly Hillbillies showing up with it with a jalopy with pots and pans hanging off the side and everything banging around because we had so many different kind of things coming together. But by the time we went overseas, tight professional, and honestly, as as a division commander, I'm sure Commander actually felt the same way. The first time I walked into the Six Fleet Maritime Ops Center that mock. I looked up on their board, I could see our radar sites on the coast, you know, pulling track data uh, and providing that that feed right into a, a fleet, you know, a maritime ops center, RXR, in play right now in a very congested and contested literal contact layer. Fantastic. All due to just the, the drive uh, of a bunch of uh, young Marines and, and sailors that really wanted to get at the problem center. Great. Thanks, sir. Um... And to maybe just expand on that a little bit, um, you you know, you had a you had a chance. I think you noted it in a defense news interview earlier this month that you know you did get to go overseas and actually use this to monitor real time naval activity um, with the war in Ukraine breaking out and Russian naval forces obviously becoming more active in support of that. So did you did you find in general that those Lexes had really kind of worked out some bugs? Did the things you brought with you? work in this sort of unexpected operational environment um, or were there any any additional things you had to sort of tinker around with or experiment once you got over there um, i would tell you the, the lexus were phenomenally helpful i mean successful i should say and i'm not trying to paint a you know it was all perfect it wasn't we we continue to work on things i mean there's there's power generation there's a logistics piece of all this um but in the end what we what we did our final lex which was here in conus on san clemente island where we flew the force to san clemente and we actually exercised this and even launched some you know small form factor opfi that's you know that's a the switchblade or and we were simulating how we would actually close the kill web and kill chain you know we did, we did that with that that same team that was on san clemente island is finding themselves in europe you know x number of days weeks later Doing the same kind of collection and 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 um, and maintaining the same kind of custody on multiple nations ships as they pass through you know contested waterways and maritime choke points, so it it did work. 
is a perfect no. And as we come back now, and we looked at that after we brought the team after this first kind of tranche overseas, now we're going back to say, okay, what do we need the system, we need a procurement system to get us to further codify that process? And uh, But the process did work. What we realized that was even more important was uh, was the, the impact of allies and partners, right? I mean, if we're going to go into the literal contact layer, Assistant Division Commander of the 2nd Marine Division was our RXR commander. He was forward, and uh, he was working in Estonia with the Estonian Mom of Finland, um, and his personal relationship, okay, that's that's why, kind of go back to humans, right? It's, it's, it's not always about the equipment. The young Marines proved we could make the equipment do what we wanted it to do. You can't do any of that unless you have a relationship with an allies and partners that allow you in, right? And the literal contact layer, not talking about blunt layer right now, we're talking about winning the RXR fight in the literal contact layer. You have to work with allies and partners. And so if you look up north, our relations with the Estonians, fantastic, great partners. And honestly, you know, and, and honestly, we learn more about maritime gain, you know, increased maritime dominion awareness and understanding from them and from us. And that is because it's their home territory, it's their home ground. And so we were able to help them enhance their learning, uh, share some of our capabilities with them. At the same time, though, we also learned how they looked at the problem set, you know, from their point of view and from their terrain. And they live it every single day. So we had to be smart about that. So I think, I think the key takeaway was, you know, reminding ourselves, and we didn't need, I didn't remind you because I know this as, as a, a leader that's got to do a whole lot of uh, ARG new time all around the world, is that in that literal contact layer, allies and partners in relationships, relationships, relationships. That's how we're going to fight. That's how we're going to do operational prep the environment. That's how we're going to establish C2 and logistics networks. And that's how we're going to win that, that literal contact layer in that RXR fight is through, um, through allies and partners. So if you look at where we were in Estonia with that incredible, uh, the, the Navy folks who work with there, um, and, and throughout the Baltics, and then down and through the Mediterranean as we did some of our actions in the Eastern Med with both the Greeks and the Turks, phenomenal allies and partners. And that's really how we're going to have to learn to train, to, to fight, and to win in that literal contact layer. Awesome. Thanks, sir. And that kind of feeds into the next point here, which is, uh, you know, we talked about the RXR, but you've, you've also been operationalizing an experiment with the sort of the larger stand-in force concept under Force Design 2030. And you just covered a, a lot of the interaction with, with allies and partners. Um, but if you could expand a little bit on on what other aspects of the stand in force you've been experimenting with, both in CONUS and overseas, in uh, with allies and partners, um, and what what are some of sort of the emerging trends and themes that you've been seeing in the experimentation? Great. I, I think the stand in force for us, the stand in force construct, boiled down to what we believe is the core elements of the stand in force is Marines, submarines, and soft. Okay. And again, and that's saying with my with my you know, previous statement about that's with allies and partners, okay? But I'm thinking the standing force that will work with allies and partners in that literal contact zone layer will be Marines, submarines, and soft. And we and we played that out in spades. We had a, a force recon um, element on a on a Navy submarine for 41 days straight. We probably haven't done that since the Korean War, you know, um, because you got to the standing force has to be able to do. The, 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 the contact layer, okay, engagement with allies and partners, because that's how we're going to gain access to the key maritime terrain that will become the, the, the friction points when we slip into the blunt layer. 
And a lot of this was, was really uh, informed by last year's Navy large-scale exercise. And we watched Sixth Fleet, you know, in that exercise kind of fight against the Russian forces and push back out of the Mediterranean, and we're going to fight their way back in. Well, right away, we recognize hey, um, Fleet Commander Admiral Black, if you were going to fight your way back in, what are those key maritime choke points that you need to be able to establish temporal sea denial, sea control, and to allow the fight back in? Well, the reality is a lot of his platforms based on the, the enemy threat system inside the WES can't fight their way back in until some of the threats are reduced. And so we want to be able to be there, and either small form factor, we need to be able to seize and hold key maritime terrain, or work with submarines to come up and inject reconnaissance in some of our RXR forces in key locations, work with soft that should also be out there in that maritime contact layer, and that's all versions of soft. And to be that, and, and to be that force that brings it all together, to increase the fleet commander's maritime demand awareness and understanding and overlay a kill web grid in those key maritime choke points that plugs back into his mock that might not longer any longer be in a set place because they had to push out. It might be on a ship, it might be a shore base further on. We might be, and I believe, we will be the only targeting mechanism that he will have to gain and, gain and make sense um, of those those key maritime choke points and provide basic targeting to start working his way, fighting his way back into that uh, into that literal now blunt layer to push the fleet back. We got to win that RXR fight uh, and that contact layer. Allies and partners, you know, if we look at it again, the standing forces we see it, Marines, submarines, and soft. And then as we shift into blunt layer, we use that those same three uh, bins to come together to set conditions for the reintroduction of the fleet and the joint force, and I think that's a key piece, RXR, you know, and uh, and then if you look at the purpose of 612, and this is where this blends together, you know, 612, command and control in the ARGMU, again, I'll always tell you, the ARGMU is probably still today in all of DOD, one of the most, uh, the best trained and well-qualified crisis response force, but when you plug that, that the ARGMU back into this construct, and then bring in the joint force, and your RXR force, in this case 612, can bring the joint force together, and really leverage joint capabilities and support that fleet commander, then we are putting the enemy on their heels and we'll be able to push push back and win in that literal uh, blunt layer. Awesome. Thank, thank you for that answer, sir. Um, I want to shift gears now a little bit, but this goes back to, uh, I, I said we'd revisit talent management here later on. So we're going to do that right now. And uh, you know, also noted core focus area for the Commandant under force design. And you know, we, we got a, about an hour with the assistant commandant this morning, just going through where talent management 2030 is, some of the some of the areas of emphasis. Um, but again, you're, you're the, the second Marine Division with Task Force 612 got a chance to operationalize this. As you already mentioned, you got a, a Navy Command Master Chief in there to help with that that blue green fusion to go carry the, the construct forward. So, if you could expand, sir, on on sort of in general, what talent management lens did you use uh, when building out the task force? when selecting Marines or sailors for certain roles and responsibilities. And is that an approach something that you've imported back to the second Marine division back in CONUS? And um, have you seen, as you've been doing all this different experimentation, any differences emerging between the second Marine division's approach to talent management and uh, your adjacent divisions as you've been going through this experimentation process? Yeah, it's a, it's a great series of questions. The uh... Um, I think just to start off is that, you know, talent management, if, if, we, if we've been in the 612 approach, you know, it's, it's again, you have to be, I was very sensitive because as a division commander, I have one focus, right, is, is in my mind to generate 
we call apex level ta battalion task force to go out to support our global force management responsibilities. So, so twice a year, we're going to kick out a battalion that's going to go to UDP into unit point rotation over in Okinawa and, and support activities in 3MEF. And we're going to, we're going to prep another battalion to come a battalion landing team to go out to mute. That's not my number one job. And that is a full-time job. This whole division is focused uh, and, they, and there's a lot of talent management below that. We have a program called the Division Leader Assessment Program that, that the division's running right now that sets in motion an evaluation of all of our inbound company, infantry company commanders to make sure we're matching the right leader with the right formation at the right time. Uh, and about 12 captains per DLAP session, we evaluate them. It's a two-week period. Uh, it's a fantastic education for them as they come off the B bullets and then plug back in the division. And then we can step back as leaders in the division, myself, Command Master Chief, the Sergeant Major, the Regimental Commander, Battalion Commanders, their Sergeant Majors and Master Gunnery Sergeants, all look at these captains to make sure across the spectrum, how do we manage the talent that Headquarters Marine Corps gives us through you know, the manpower system and MRA? How do we best manage in that talent to plug the right leader again, the right formation, the right time? If we do that, we can build competency and lethality quicker. And uh, in this division, our competency and lethality is built on that every single deploying battalion, their rifle companies will execute a night company level supported non-illuminated live fire attack and defense. No one else is doing that right now. So talent management isn't just for in support of career management and support of, you know, um, you know, just we want to do better. We want to apply talent directly into our competency and lethality. So that was one of the things that we used the division leader assessment program to make sure we could never lose focus on job number one, Apex Task Force going out in support of you know UDP rotation Okinawa and on the ARGMU. So that's that's going on in the division. So when you take on 612, you know, some of the things we talked about is that where can we where can we then look at the talent we have, keep the main thing the main thing. Also, step forward and execute the 612 mission. And so, again, um, right then, you look across your staff, the functional areas in your staff, and that's why it's, it's so important that in day-to-day -day operations, division, head, division headquarters, we're not just, it's just the G3. No, it's the G3 Alpha. It's also the, the Master Guns, in this case, Master Gunner Sergeant Tom McCarty, who is the operations chief. I, I have three leaders that are really good and an air officer that is really good. And then plan, 0505 planners the Marine Corps gives us, you know, that have been to SAW and all that. They're really good. We have depth. So you got to look at your depth and then manage the talent appropriately. So we were able to take a slice of our division staff plus enablers across the MEF to create that right size headquarters for 612 on top of our XR investment that's already in the six fleet headquarters to total out about a, probably about 150 total. Yeah, that we would go forward for this, you know, period of time. Okay, so it's not though that we disconnected. So we picked the right people. So it, it, I always think about you got to earn your seat, right? You got to earn your seat. Not everyone is best suited to 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 handle every job. So know your people, and then pick the right ones to do the job at hand. And if you're going to go forward, what we're not going to do is pick lots of people because we're going to operate faster there. Okay, we'll be on on step and 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 you know I'd rather take 150 that are tight, focused, ready to go vice three or 400 that I just need to watch rotations. I'm not interested in that. We're interested in, in picking the right talent to go forward so we can get a lot done and maintain a high tempo. So we, we, knew, we picked the right folks, we deployed forward, and then, and, but we didn't disconnect from the division, okay? So we have a C2 architecture 
that is fo focused on small form factor communications, that we can take smaller secret level um, comm systems forward with us, distribute, and then still command and control. So I, I never believed I lost command of the division at any given time. Control remained in Camp Lejeune with our G3, with our G4, G6, all those core warfighting functions that have to continue to turn to do the main thing, which is Apex Battalion Task Force. I still play, stay plugged in. Command Master Chief and I still stay plugged in as leaders from a forward position. Maybe some long days, the time distance, but we didn't unplug from either because um, the main, the division main, is still turning every single day. We're just forward now, and we call it the commander's coordination cell, the triple C, that's set up to go forward. And at times, even in 612, we went forward again for certain exercises like we did up to Iceland, where we took an even smaller cell out of Naples, where the, the core staff was, and went forward again in small form factor comms and did that. And again, that's a version of talent management. If you're going forward with a team of 10 or 12, they're the right team of 20 12, 10 or 12. You picked them. You know them. You know what their skills are. People can do dual and triple hat to get the job done. You can go up to exercise, come back. And so I think it's so so we have a number of different kind of features going on with talent management, but but you really have to know your people and you have to make the tough calls. And you have to assign the mission for that individual that they can handle and excel at. And uh and, and not everyone gets a small trophy. And that's just kind of the on my mind, the operational art of talent management. Is, uh, is is leveraging the capabilities you have, and I tell you, across this division, we got, we got great capabilities. There was never a there was never a lack of an, a level of expertise, um, and either six one two forward or forward again, like in one case Iceland, and then back here in Maine. Absolutely no no lack of of coverage. In fact, that we were able to use our sergeant major and G three and chief of staff to then go out to 20 on Palms during MWX, where one of our battalion, one of our regiments was going through MWX, another exercise at WTI, and we talked about four, Lex 4 was going on the West Coast. We spread out our leaders with their small form factor secret systems so they could go out West and, and provide C2O with those, those other actions at one time. Long answer, okay? And I, I don't know how the other divisions, I'm assuming they're doing something very similar. I know we're the only division doing DLAP right now, and uh, that's become very important to me um, and because I, I want to know each of where that we've placed the right leader. In my mind, an infantry division at the most important leadership role is that company commander. You know, he he or she will have, you know, 150, 200 young Marines and sailors they're in charge of. They got to be good. And so the, the, the point of DLAP for us, it's not about the captain. It's about the Marines and sailors that are lead. So I don't know, th any thoughts about talent management and division from your perspective of a of the, of the naval side or just anything we've done? So, sir, I see talent management here has been going on long before we got here because most of the staff was already here. They were all very good. And when you have two two missions that are a no-fail option, um, you have to have good talent. When you go to Sixth Fleet and you bring a group of Marines and you implant them down on the mock and you integrate them within all the division, all the departments within uh, Sixth Fleet, Failure is not an option. The best of the best have got to be there, and that's what we did. We took them there, and they did the job. But then not only did you and I forward deploy, again, we also forward deployed the ADC multiple times and left uh, RXR on its own, and everything continued to move smoothly. And I, far better than I would have ever imagined it was going out the doors. Everything was experimental, and all of a sudden it was real world, and it performed like we'd been doing it for years, like we re-rehearsed it. And, you know, 
it was the first time. So, no, I challenge management's just continuous and we have to stay on top of it and continue to bring in the best and the brightest and uh, get them to perform at this level and give them the opportunities to perform yeah, and not absolutely. hold them back. Absolutely. That's, that's the key is let them run, yeah. you know, let them loose and let them go. Yeah. And I think that's the, the, you know, for, because it's not, you know, when we talk about talent management, we're not getting any more people, right? It's how well do we know the talent we have? How do we manage the talent that's already on the playing field? That's what we got. You know, in our in our you know our our division leader assessment program, we get so many new inbound infantry captains a year. All stop. How we use them and how we assign them and sequence them is our responsibility. That's where we're involved. So so you know you really can't get aggressive with talent management unless you really know your people. And that's a, you know that's just relationships, right? It's all about relationships and 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 what strengths and weaknesses. Let's leverage, let's leverage the strengths, let's work on the weaknesses, and then properly assign folks the missions they can handle and excel at. So don't be surprised when if it comes up short. You know, so that's how that's how we look at talent management in second market. Yeah, great, General. Appreciate that answer. And that really that that aligns and, and kind of echoes what General Smith was talking about this morning. And it all starts with that. You know, he talked about the kneecap to kneecap, and that's how you get to know your people, and then that's how you know how you can effectively use them and where where you can put them in situations you know that they will they will thrive and get the mission done. If you got time for a couple more questions, we'll we'll hit those out and then uh, be ready to wrap it up, sir. So you, you've already mentioned uh, several of the new programs or initiatives that, that have been going on under the division. Things that you've stood up, such as the DLAP, and then other things that fall under force design, like the IBEX or or uh, the RXR. You also mentioned the the non illuminated night live fire unique event going on. As you get close to your time, uh, the end of your time at Second Marine Division, what are your hopes for the hopes for these programs going forward? Every every new commander, we all know how this works out, has to make his own decision where he wants to go, what direction he wants to go. I kind of fall back on to looking exactly almost two years ago that when I when I got here, my thought was after you know being at 515 for two years and two years after that being at JSOC, um, and this is agnostic to force design. Okay, if we want to get in the fight as, as, a, as a Marine Infantry Division, okay, we have to do it, be able to do it at night, do it with precision, and do it at range. You know, I mean, at range, it means we have to be able to do it distributed. That's just, that's just, that's the expectation level, right? And so, um, put together a mission training plan to kind of get us there, uh, and very quickly accelerate it in, in that direction. And that, that was, uh, um, and, and, and the end result um, was fairly remarkable. Okay, so we talked about DLAP, um, you know, how we can kind of look at our own, our own talent that's been provided to us. Uh, you look at the night company, all the live fires, that doesn't, that just doesn't happen. Um, and, and a lot of the folks helped make that happen. You know, you had before I got here, General uh, Dale Alford was the base commander here, followed by Brigadier General Annie Nebel. These are great partners that 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 have, we have proven through their help and assistance is that Campbell's Union, North Carolina, is in my mind the premier literal training zone uh, in all of the United States Marine Corps. We have coastal, we have riverine, we have estuary, we have tough infantry complex terrain. That is absolutely no joke. And uh, and so if you can fight and win there, especially at night on your nods in kind of a, in, in, in a low emission comms, we can fight and win anywhere. And I, and I honestly believe that. Um, and so so if you look at, you know, how so many things came together, we talk about DLAP, talent management, human capital, invest at the rifle company level. We have 10th Marines that are going through the revolution of cannons to find the, the balance forces on um, uh, transition between cannons and HIMARS. But at the same time, we have 10th Marines um, working on how to fire in not only battery, but by section, by platoon, okay, down by maybe individual guns, distributed so we can be less targetable, okay? 
fire from rough terrain, not in the middle of an LZ, okay? We've had uh, 10th Marines also fire 155s out into the ocean uh, to simulate engaging naval targets. Man, that's awesome. And that's not part of force design. That's just part thinking about how we're going to fight now and in the future, you know, whatever system comes next. But right now, we could fight that right now, and we've done it a number of times. Um, and so, so I could go down each, each element of the division, how they've kind of taken on different things that are a natural evolution as we step further away from the GWAT mission tasks that were very important of, of stability operations and, and all those things that were, we had to do for almost 20 years and really figuring out, hey, you know, what Marines do, okay, around the world, you know, and we have since our origins is, is, is season whole key maritime terrain. <laughs> I mean, that's what we do. We can do it at scale. And, uh, and so I think everyone's been kind of working on a couple of different initiatives there to, to get that going. We were, the other one, the other initial we, initiative we were officially assigned was that infant tank experimentation, IBEX-30. Um, and that we had our 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines aligned to that. We, because of our manpower enterprise with our G1, you know, and I call them the main effort in the division because it's all about relationships. It's really all about people. You know, our manpower enterprise with help of, um, MNRA and folks, we got them um, to almost 100% TO a year out and then gave them a very aggressive IBEX training plan that they got to use some of the high-end, more high-end stuff from uh, equipment, all that from the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, and that was good. But in the end, we found out that our structure in that IBEX battalion with more mature um, or more senior NCOs, staff NCOs um, populated throughout the battalion, what a phenomenal organization, you know, and to watch them come through what was really important to us for every battalion this, in this division goes through, their Marine Corps Combat Readiness Evaluation in McCree, which again is the absolutely uh, hold the line standard that that regimental commander will execute for that battalion commander and tell me they're ready to go out the door. One, two's McCree in Camp Lejeune was remarkable. You know, we had one rifle company commander move 112, 120 kilometers on their feet in Camp Lejeune in the middle of summer, okay, during their McCree. And that's our one of our distributed companies. Remarkable work, okay? And that can be applied now or in, in 2030. That's just good, hard infantry skills um, that we want to be platform agnostic. We don't want to be tied to a certain type of vehicle or a certain type of aircraft. We want to use those when required. But we want to move across difficult, hard terrain and, and fight the enemy on our terms in, in, in their backyard. And I, and I believe we, we proved that through the IBEX you know, look, and that IBEX piece is, but it's the same thing our other battalions are working through right now, and our great independent battalions, light armor reconnaissance, and AAVs as we transition from the AAV platform to the ACV, and we're getting our first ACVs this fall, excited about that. But at the same time, second track battalion is also working on literal mobility, and we're getting into boats and moving boats across the water too. Really phenomenal work. You know, um, I mentioned second recon um, before, their phenomenal work and just the core hard reconnaissance skills, then getting back into the water, into that maritime domain, working on submarines. I mean, just really good things across the board, in my mind, are all part of, uh, not experimentation, part of force design, but actually just part of fighting as an infantry division and, 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 and real excited about, about the, the, the path we're on. So, so my replacement, you can look across the spectrum, look at what the, the tasks you have in the, in the, core, the core METs of the division, offense, defense, and expeditionary operations. See where he wants to double down and move forward. He might want to move in a different direction. All his call. And, uh, and, but I think we set a foundation to look at kind of a number of different um, things to, to, to either advance or, or pull back from. But 
Job number one is back to job number one. We want our battalions going out on the uh, to Okinawa on the UDP to, to operate in the Pacific or on that MU that's a worldwide deployable organization. You know, we want them to be at the apex level. And, and I don't think you can back away from that. Specifically, they can enter into theater, ready to go, don't need more additional training. Uh, they are ready to fight as soon as they plant their feet in theater. And that's that's job number one. And and my assumption is my my, my um, successor will, will keep that in line. Any thoughts on that kind of question? So I think near and dear to me, the program that the general really implemented was uh, DCAT, which is the uh, Division Combat Academy Trauma, which really takes those corpsmen within the units and trains them up to really the next war. The there's nothing we can do. There's not there. There's there are no more golden hour. We've got them and we've got to maintain them and be able to make the decisions on. Unfortunately, which ones are going to live or die? Because that's what it's going to be in the middle of nowhere is how much do I waste all my gears, all my supply on this one individual, or do I save 10 others? And the, the, the stuff that we've implemented within the division, it's amazing. And it's across the Navy, but it's different because in the Navy, they've got a hospital where they're doing trauma stuff, or they got a ship where they're doing trauma stuff. It's not out in the battlefield where everything's dirty and muddy. It's, it's completely different. So getting those sailors now up to speed to where they can go forward and do combat. Um, you know, that's, that's huge. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Hey, Scott, thanks for bringing that up. Cause I think, you know, the, the prolonged casualty care, um, and really the whole blood program are, are things that are, that are, it's not, they're not good ideas. They're, they're the requirement that, that is going to become the standard. If we're going to operate distributed, you know, as, as command actually said, the golden hour is not there triage calls. We probably hadn't had to have that kind of triage conversation in a very long time, you know, and then so limited resources, you know, I, I can't bring in the, 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 uh, the Kazvac medevac, you know, V 22 long range. If I still have an active WES that I'm going to lose other aircraft in. So it's, it's a, it's been a, and I've been so impressed with our whole Navy team. I mean, we had a thousand sailors, you know, in the, in the, in the second Marine division, you know, between our corpsmen, our docks, our RPs, our chaps, you know, th these are folks that are right in that. And those that know uh, the structure of the infantry division or across the Marine Corps, but very unique relationship in the division. And I think it's great to see, you know, our division surgeon command master leading the way and forcing us to kind of uh, accept the realities of distributed operations and forces on or not, and, you know, how we would fight when we don't have all that structure built into what we got used to in, in an incredible way in Iraq and Afghanistan, we put all that medical capability forward. And so I think that's one of the things that the deep cat as, as command master talked about is it's been, you know, really one of those innovations that is uh, underlying has to underline all the other conversations we're having. Great. Thank you, sir. And command master chief. I'm glad you brought that, that, the, the DCAT up because in some of the, the commentary I've seen about, you know, force design 2030, the, the golden hour and casualty care has been something raised as, you know, needing more attention. But I think the, you know, the, the thing that hasn't been found in the commentary is you can't assume that you're going to have that anymore. So if you don't have that, you have to be ready to make those kind of decisions to be, and be able to still treat casualties in that kind of environment. So again, that, that's great. It sounds like that's already, it's already being experimented with and looking how to do it in a, in a much more challenging environment. All right, so general final question, and sir, I'm, I'm going to quote you on this, but uh, it's to both of you because you've been both rowing, you know, sailing this course or walking this road, wherever you want to put it together. But uh, a couple of days ago um, on the War on the Rocks podcast you did with Ryan Evans that came out, I listened to it. There's something right at the end that really caught my attention when you were talking and comparing the British effort in Burma during World War II with the Force Design 2030 efforts undergoing in the Marine Corps today. And you talked about how, you know, in comparing us with the British, 
the British then and us now, they had a military force that they didn't think it could ever leave the road. They thought they were going to be had to figure out how to, you know, just stay in one very narrow lane, try and try and use that lane to defeat an enemy that that dominated everything that was around the lane. Right. But a few years later, they were off the road. They were moving through the jungle and mastering the operating environment in, a, in just as well, if not better than their adversaries did. So, you know, maybe it's not jungle now. Maybe it's ocean and littorals. But where do you, um, sir, and Master Chief, in, in the time, the experiments, what you've done with the division and Task Force 61 to where do you see the Marine Corps and the Navy together on this road as it moves out with Force Design 2030? Are we still on the road? Are we off roading or or an open ocean some somewhere? Or are we somewhere in the middle? Hey, it's a, it's a great. I like your the figurative aspect of on road or off the road because that's because there's a there's a real physical aspect to that because we have become a very kind of and, and I'm I'm speaking just you know. Major General Frank Donovan, 2nd Marine Division, you know, kind of look at this, we become a little bit of a heavier organization, right? Our vehicles are heavier, thick. Our mentality sometimes is, is we need to bring everything because we've always had everything. And, that, and that's coming from a, a, a Desert Shield guy that, you know, came in on a craft aircraft in, in August 20th of 1990, you know, landed and walked out in the desert and kept walking, you know, and, and, and didn't take the first shower for two months later, you know, and never, you know, had a, a, a minute of air conditioning until we got our first break back at one of the camps. MPF, MPF offloaded all of our kit and we drove out in the desert and defended, defended Saudi Arabia as our task. And so, so my start point is, is, you know, we've gotten heavier. I think there's room to grow and, 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 and get lighter and more flexible, more dynamic. And I think that that's only not only inside the division, you know, um, uh, you know, with the, the equipment we're buying, how we're equipping our Marines, especially infantry Marines, do we have specific kit and equipment for our infantry Marines to be more dynamic, lighter on their feet, uh, lighter gear, all those things to be able to pursue the enemy, to actually gain and maintain contact and seize and hold that key maritime terrain quicker than the enemy can. That's so. So that's just kind of the overall lightness, and that's why Slim and Burma and that that example. You know, the British Army, the the Expeditionary Force had taught itself it needs all these things, these bases, these big trucks, these big roads, just survive. You know, maybe not, right? Now, standards, right? Um, if we need an air conditioner in every vehicle, and we do need a big fob and and all that, if we're going to be firm, then we probably could go back to that. You know, and then we end up, you know, vehicles on certain roads and and IEDs and, and and vehicle strikes so hard, but you know, you build bigger IEDs, you build bigger vehicles, right? I mean, that's just kind of the how things happen in some of those environments. So I think this is an opportunity to kind of reevaluate ourselves and think about all the modes of transportation, all the modes of maneuver, operational maneuver from the sea, using sea as maneuver space to show up where the enemy is least expecting us. That's kind of been around since our since our origins, right? We we hang back over the horizon. You know, the, did the Barbary pirates know that we were off the horizon, ready to come ashore, and know that we actually you know put the landing force off that came across the desert at Derna? You know, that's the that's the dynamic nature, I believe, that we bring as a Navy Marine Corps team that we bring to the Joint Force Commander, you know, initially through the, the maritime component. But the Joint Force Commander can then leverage other joint assets to create the best solution, especially in early conflict stages where we need to go again, seize and hold, maintain um, sea denial, sea denial, um, in uh, sea control operations in key maritime terrain, and so so I think so I think uh, that the the idea of of uh, defeat into victory that book we read that as a PME book here in the division in our first year to kind of get our thoughts around 
you know, that, that expeditionary force that convinced themselves this is the way to fight. Uh, I think, you know, force design has us look at, but I think we're trained that way anyway, post GWAT, where we had to think about uh, availability ships, how we get around the world can be more dynamic, flexible, to be more employable, but also to bring the right balance of mass and fires and force, working with the joint force to find the best solution, you know, for that, that, that supported JTF or GCC commander. And I believe we're on a really good path. And, uh, and so the things done inside the division, I think, are natural transitions. Force design helps push us faster, but they're probably natural transitions we were on anyway. Any, any thoughts, Connor? So uh, being a prior CV and moving with the CVs, we have a huge tail behind us because of all the logistics. I see the infantry units right now with all these big vehicles, and there's a large tail and logistics that have to follow. So I, I believe they need to figure out a new way to move. And I think we're looking at a lot of new, yeah. new opportunities on how do you move the infantry move uh, ground units on the ground to get them where they need to be. Um, but I also think the Navy has got to do its part. Do we need amphibious ships full of vehicles or do we need amphibious ships full of people? And I think people is the way to go. We talk about, I think amphibious platforms, you know, that again, that ARG MU selling around the world, we stopped doing heel to toe ARG MUs, you know, back in the mid 2000s, you know, that is the nation's crisis response force. And then link it with that joint force, the 82nd Airborne, 18th Airborne Corps together, phenomenal capability. You know, we don't have ships right now and, and to do that. And I think we leave gaps around, around around the world we don't have that incredible um you know true swiss army knife for a, a, a geographic map commander to apply to a problem set um but i think again uh, you know if we look at other platforms remember the standing force in my mind you know marines submarines and soft is it submarines is it lcs is it ddgs is it forward staging eabos and we link all this together as a navy marine corps team you know you plug that in the joint architecture that, that's uh, that's pretty unstoppable in my mind. So we all play a role in adapting to the, the new environment. How do we fight at range? You know, how do we fight and win on our terms in their backyard? And how to bring that joint force together, you know, initially through the, 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 the maritime component to achieve, uh, you know, that GC commander's objectives. All right, great. Well, thank you both for, uh, for expanding on that. And um, looking at the time, we're over here right about an hour. So I don't want to uh, keep you all any longer. Been very gracious with your time already. But uh, to Major General Frank Donovan, Command Master Chief Scotty Cox, on behalf of the Krulak Center and Marine Corps University, we want to thank both of you for taking the time out to talk to us on the broadcast. I think this is this is uh, we're, this is about the third episode I think in in this season where we're really getting into what is the fleet doing, what is the operating force doing, and looking at the future and posturing itself to get ready for the that future operating environment. And we've seen it now from what McTodd is up to and how it trains, what the what we're looking at in the broader talent management and now what operationalizing some of these changes, you know, actually out there in the real world is looking like. So this has been a great spectrum of perspectives we've been able to share. So um, our thanks to, to you, to both of you gentlemen, to your staff for helping us set this up. It's fantastic. And I can't wait to share this with the rest of our audience. So again, thank you very much. Appreciate your time, gentlemen. Major Brown, thanks. And thanks for what you're doing. Take care. Thank you, sir. You too. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected education, preparation for the unexpected.